Hello and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. I'm your host, Alex Green IV. Today we welcome back Catherine Connor and welcome guest Catherine Miller from the Center for Understanding and Conflict for episode number two of this series. I introduced you to and gave a biography for Catherine Connor from episode one. In this episode, let's introduce Catherine Miller. Catherine Miller is an attorney practicing mediation and collaborative practice in Westchester County, New York. She has been practicing family law since 1987, first as litigator and now exclusively inside the court system. She has taught family law at the White Institute and NYU, as with the center and lectures regularly on mediation and collaborative practice. She is a board member of the New York Association of Collaborative Professionals. Our discussion today focuses on the training and conflict resolution model at the Center for Understanding and Conflict. First, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Alex. Hi, Alex. Nice to okay. see you again. Right. Nice to see you um, again. So I read that, or I see that this model at the Center for Understanding and Conflict is an understanding-based approach um, and it has these six underlying concepts. Um, you know, developing an understanding, letting the parties own the conflict, proceeding by agreement and going beneath the problem, allowing tension and support to support autonomy and honor connection. Could we just kind of give a brief explanation of what each one of these means, or even perhaps like an example of how perhaps if you were in a training or you were giving a uh, hypothetical or a role play, what, the, what each one of these looks like in practice. Yeah, let me start, Alex, just by telling you a little bit of a story about how these came about, because I think it's pretty interesting, okay. which is the founders of the center and the model, Gary Friedman and Jack Kimmelstein, had been teaching together and developing the model over a few years. And they were in a coffee shop in Vienna where they'd done a training. And they said, you know, we've been talking about this for a while, teaching it. Maybe we should try and come up with some underlying concepts to create a structure and that sort of principles people could work off when they're practicing. So they each literally took out a napkin and wrote down and said, well, let's do five each. And they wrote down five each. And it turned out that five, uh, four overlapped and then they each had one extra. So that's how it became six underlying concepts. And it's really something that for me and what we teach people is try and have these as something you live by as you're practicing, because at any moment, particularly when there's something tough, one of these principles can help you to figure out what to do, as well as just, you know, the, the foundation for how we work together. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about the first one. Maybe we just take turns with uh, okay, so, uh, so for the audience, that was Catherine Connor. <laughs> Thanks, Alice. Uh, so the first one is develop understanding, which obviously for the understanding-based model would make sense that that's our first one. And, and, and what that means is that instead of using um, pressure, coercion, and trying to push people or scare people into reaching agreements by, and, and often the way it's done is, well, if you go to court, this terrible thing is what's going to happen, or you never know what's going to happen. And so that's how you try and push people to agreement. Instead, what we believe is that if you try and help people to understand their own views, because sometimes they don't even have clarity about what's important to them, what's important to the other person and their perspective on the situation, and the understanding of just the sort of practical reality of their situation, by doing that, you have a much better chance of coming up with an agreement that makes sense to both of them in which they can agree and feel good about and actually carry out rather than something they're kind of 
pushed into and maybe they regret or maybe they resist even doing it once they come to their senses. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So that's what develop understanding is about. Okay. And you do see this um, just anecdotally um, because people have, you know, deadlines and some of these are court connected mediations. Mm -hmm. So keeping both interests in mind, which is an efficient mediation that looks at the operative facts and perhaps even the law in certain cases, but I understand that in mediation we try, we're not, you know, acting as attorneys or counsel for the parties, but sometimes attorneys are involved. Mm -hmm. um, how do we manage both interests? Because I mean, in a perfect world, we could develop an understanding and whatever that understanding is, is fine. But in a court case, right, there may be certain things that may have to be done in a certain way. Um, so how do we balance that? Uh, this is Catherine Connor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, initially, whenever I start a mediation, after we go through just, you know, having a, a conversation about how it's going to work, I always ask, and even if it's a one where, you know, maybe it's a three-hour settlement conference that people are mandated to go through court and I'm there volunteering, I always ask, is there information that you need that would help you to be able to say yes in the end? And so many times, even with lawyers involved, there's a very key missing piece of information. So that's the practical reality point. And if people don't have it, they're just going to say no. So you actually end up spending more time if you don't have that information because people say no, well, why no? Eventually it comes out, oh, well, I need this piece of information. Um, with respect to understanding what's important to people, um, again, even if I do a short one where, you know, court is, you know, a trial is pending, if you can spend even, you know, half an hour talking to people about what's important about the solution, what is it that's going to make a difference for you in your life, you have a much better chance, again, of coming to agreement where they feel like they can say yes, because if it's not going to work for them, they're more likely to say no. And so that's just a basic part of every mediation or any kind of conflict resolution that I do is finding that out. Um, because otherwise you could take a lot longer and do the pressure, but people can, I think they say yes quicker when they feel like they're being taken care of, of what's important to them rather than you have to keep pushing them and eventually push them into an agreement. Has that been your experience, uh, Catherine Miller? It has. And, you know, Alex, I'd like to just add one other thing about developing understanding, which is obviously the core underlying principle. It's the big gahona of the understanding-based model. Of course, it's to develop understanding. But one thing that I think, in my experience, is, is that people come into conflict not with a really full understanding of themselves, right? And and there and a lot of anxiety. When pe most people hate conflict. And in fact, my belief is that most conflict resolution professionals came to the field in a counter and phobic way because they don't know what to do with conflicts. So like, you know, it's physician heal thyself. Like, let's mm -hmm. find out how to learn, how we can learn to deal with conflict better. And because of that anxiety, people just sort of take a position and, and the position will help them stop feeling anxious about the conflict, right? And so then they stop trying to understand themselves because they're just like, well, if, if I got this thing, I, you know, if I got the red car, then I wouldn't be anxious about it. Anyone would have to think about the blue car or the green car. You know, obviously I'm oversimplifying here. And and one of the key tenets is that, it, it, the, that the conflict resolution will be better served if both people take the time to understand where they're, they themselves are coming from and why first. And so, I mean, to me, this was a absolutely paradigm shifting idea that 
each person, myself included, when I'm in a conflict with somebody or I'm in a negotiation, to understand where I'm coming from first brings down my own anxiety because I can understand, hey, you know, what's up with that? Then what's up with the position that I'm taking? What's up with the feelings that I'm having? And if we can encourage people to do that and then and then come back to, all right, now how am I going to figure out what's going on with you? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm coming from a really different stance because I feel a lot more grounded in myself. And that in and of itself makes a really big difference in how people see the conflict. So they're coming in, okay, each person has their stance and they're Uh about it. And now we've developed the understanding and then it shifts just a little bit, just a little, but where it seemed, where it seemed impossible and stuck because we were so entrenched in where we're coming from. Now we understand the situation. It's maybe a little bit looser. We've shifted a, you know, a degree Mm-hmm. And now we see it a little bit differently. And that in and of itself can be really uh, in- incredibly powerful. And so the corresponding part of that is that when someone's felt, if they feel like they've been understood and they actually understand themselves better, they're opening to hearing and understanding the other person. And what's interesting, I think, is as we come in with anxiety ourselves, we may be stuck to a position, we also come in with this whole story about the other person mm-hmm. and what they think and what they want and why they did the things they did. And if we can have a conversation where I, as one party conflict, feel understood, now I can kind of start to open up and be willing to hear the other person. There may be things I hear like, oh, I didn't realize that's why you did that. Or I didn't know that's what you wanted. I've heard that so many times when we have the conversation together in the same room and someone's listening to the other person, all of a sudden they have you can tell that the story they had about the other person has now changed dramatically because they've had the opportunity to actually listen to the other person. You can't own the conflict if you don't know yourself, right? And you don't, you can't own your role in it and maybe the party's position, right? If you don't understand who the parties are and what um, informs their perspectives, is that, would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you were talking a little bit earlier about uh, the sort of the idea that ex- expanding understanding might seem a little counterintuitive in the in the moment, right? Because one of the things that is, uh, I think, really present for us sort of in our hardwiring as humans is this idea of right and wrong. Well, if, if we're in conflict, Alex, and I'm right, well, you have to be wrong. And if, and if you're right, well, then I have to be wrong. And right. who wants to be wrong? Right. Nobody, you yes. know? And so if we have this idea that we're both we both have our view. Mm-hmm. And if you just separate that from right and wrong, like, like then it, it sort of, it's like, wow, wait a second. You can have your view and I can have my view and I don't have to make me right and you wrong. And I don't have to feel wrong if you're right. And if the mediator or the conflict resolution professional can hold those two ideas Alex's view and Catherine's view mm-hmm. at the same time without ex- without exploding and without having to decide mm-hmm. now we, we really have an opportunity to think about about what the problem is w- without that idea of right and wrong and and necessarily not necessarily win and lose mm-hmm. either because win and lose that's a very close cousin to right and wrong <laughs> and and so that really enlarges the possibility a resolution to a place that might not be something that either party or any party in a multi-party conflict had thought about before. Right. And that actually ties into what you asked about, Alex, which Uh was the parties owning the conflict, which is when they understand it better, 
they own the conflict, but also as conflict professionals, we're not going to be the ones to make the decision. And we're not going to be trying to you know, direct them into what we think is, oh, I've heard this case number 27. Let me just you know, guide them to saying yes to case number 27 solution because I know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. It's they, they now understand themselves better. They understand the situation. They're going to be living with the solution. It's their responsibility to find the right solution, not the professional's. And this is really hard. It's hard mm-hmm. for the professionals and it's often hard for parties because they're like, we're stuck. We're going to go to you know, Catherine and she's going to mm-hmm. tell us what to do. So we're saying to them, no, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You are going to figure out what to do with my help, but it's really your responsibility. And so as the professionals like, oh, whew, I don't mm-hmm. have that burden on my shoulders of trying to figure out how to solve their problem. They actually have it. And that engages them in a very different way. And they put more energy into it and they can come up with great ideas. When you say, I've said so many times, I don't have a magic wand here. Mm -hmm. You have ideas about what we should do here. And then you just sit and sometimes silence can then be, oh, I have to come up with this. Actually, I have a great idea. Uh Uh But make no mistake. There are that any listeners out there who are professionals or you know thinking, wait a freaking second, isn't it the mediator's job to resolve the conflict? And 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 that's a really interesting pressure point. So what does that mean that it's the that it's the mediator's job to resolve the conflict? And so what we're saying with this, letting the parties on the conflict, is that it's the party's conflict. They created it, and ultimately, they're going to solve it. And it's our job to help them do that, to do it. We're helping to do it by creating the opportunity, the model, the the boundaries, the process for them to have those conversations. But we're not getting in front of them and making those decisions for them because we can't. Right. Mm-hmm. We might have an idea, but we're not going to go home with them <laughs> and, and, and help them and sort of be there, sort of blowing the whistle wherever they are having their conflict. Right. And what's, I can. What's interesting, oh, go what's interesting is I think if you get ahead of people. Mm-hmm. So I have a solution as the conflict professional and I just want to maybe figure out how to get them there. People can feel that and they can feel like you're trying to draw them away from what they want and become more resistant. Mm -hmm. And actually, you can make it more difficult if you're three steps of where they are Mm -hmm. rather than being there with them. And you're kind of all going together along this path towards a resolution, but you're not pulling them along as if, you know, they're the donkey and you're pulling them. (laughs) Right. They're like putting their heels in. It's like a reflex. If you pull me one way, I'm pulling another, like a tug of war. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, And I guess my thought is, you know, is it, is that one of the reasons why I know mediators are often taught they don't really, you know, one of the things I struggle with, you know, in mediation, uh, learning about how to be a mediator is, well, what's the law on this? What's the, you know, industry standard on this, right? And the mediator was, um, a little bit more from a school of thought where, you know, I've said a little bit more assistive and more um, less evaluative in, you know, in terms of how she be- thought of conflict resolution. So, I mean, is it true that, I mean, is it difficult, for example, if you do have, because I mean, we do like to come up, especially in the world. I mean, we can't, you know, we need a some type of reference point usually for something, right? So if you hear someone say something that you know is just 
you know, it, it may be their belief, but it's a little bit far afield, right? For whatever reason, how do we guide, you know, without not allowing the party to own the conflict and not understanding, right, uh, the, the, the party's perspective, how do you sort of grapple with that? Because, there, you know, there are going to be people who kind of, and that's for Catherine Miller, there are going to be people who just are a little bit too far afield. I mean, you know, certain things are certainly, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that we solve conflict in math, but like two plus two is still going to be four, right? Right. So I, that's a great question. And uh, it really, I, the way that you're phrasing it really basically says, what's the role of law mm -hmm. in, in the mediation, right? Is, is law or the mediator's opinion or the lawyer's mm -hmm. opinion of what the likely outcome in court going to be is would be if the people mm -hmm. were in court, is that the right answer mm -hmm. or is it not the right answer? And you know where does that fall? And, and so we believe that the law is an important part of the reality that the people face and, and part of the BATNA, right? The best alternative or perhaps the worst alternative to a negotiated agreement, it might well include a legal proceeding and, mm -hmm. and a judge making a judge or a jury making a decision as to what the right answer is. And mm -hmm. so um, the, the question is, can people know that, right? Know that the likely outcome in court is a range of options between A and B and assimilate that into part of the decision-making process and make a decision together and indivi or individually how much importance that should have. You know, it kind of goes back to the letting the parties own the conflict also, because when the media is like, well, the right result is what I think would happen if we were in court, right? If that's the right result, and if you guys are not going to be like in that range of possibility, then you're not doing it right, you know? And, and so it's it's a lot, in some ways, easier to, to do it that way and say, okay, the right result falls in this uh, this frame. And, you know, if you go back to uh, Rubenstein and Yuri getting to yes, like the, one of the original books on interest-based negotiation, where all this sort of stems from, you know, they talk about this idea of objective criteria. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, and, and I sort of, um, I, I think that the objective criteria, the, the reliance on objective criteria, to, if you, to the extent you can say that the law is objective, right? Because <laughs> right. I'm not so sure that it is. <laughs> The reliance on that, if you say that's, you know, that that's a way to kind of keep people in bounds. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think what you're asking about, Alex, is when people are sort of really kind of out of bounds, mm -hmm. you know, what, and and I think that, I still think, and I, I, Catherine Connor, I, I think you agree that it's best to keep them talking about what works for them. But to have this idea that, there is an out exterior reality. There is a, a, an outside world that if they cannot resolve this dispute in this negotiation, whether or not it's mediation or some out of court resolution, then what are they going to do? And, and it, I think that it's useful and the model calls for them knowing that, right? And then making a decision about whether or not they're willing to stay in this process and work on a resolution that makes sense for them based on their knowledge of the external reality, including the law, because it's not just that. It's the finances of the situation. It's contracts that might be involved. It's prior agreements. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff out there that's important to them that might not be right in the room with us. Right. And let me just add one more thing, which is something you mentioned, Alex, which is, you know, there's societal standards. Mm -hmm. and, you know, does that come into play? 
And when I'm talking about the law or having, if there's lawyers involved, having them talk about the law, I think it's really important for the parties to understand why is the law the way it is? So are there some underlying principles for a particular law and why it's being applied in the way it would in their case? Because then they get to decide, oh, well, those principles actually make sense for our situation, or those principles or standards actually don't apply to our situation, and it, it makes it more sense to do something different from the law. But then they get to decide that by understanding kind of what's under the hood rather than just telling them this is the law and the way it is, right, right. not understanding why. Okay. Yeah, yes. which is a problem that a lot of lawyers, mediators, are not have. We, you know, we're sort of talking the secret language right. about with legal terms and, and not mm -hmm. translating what that secret language means. It can be really scary for people who don't speak that language. Right. And towards this, do you think the model prefers conflicts that aren't court connected or before they get to a court process? And do you think it prefers just having the parties and not counsel with the parties? Um, it would seem it, it would be easier without, you know, I'm, I'm not to say that those aren't important, but it sounds like you're really trying to get at who the disputants are. I mean, the model applies to basically any situation where people are in conflict. Mm -hmm. So that could be, um, you know, we've done trainings with people that are um, doing workplace mediation. So mm -hmm. and, and they're not going to be going to court, but they're going to be working together with each other and they have a conflict. You know, maybe it's a manager and a direct report and they need to work through it. It applies in group situations that aren't necessarily something to go to court. Maybe it's a nonprofit organization that's having staff conflicts. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's between two neighborhood groups. Right. Um, so there, it's really, is there a situation where you could work through by understanding, as we said, you know, the parties, their views, the situation, and then brainstorm possibilities and put it all together, this model can apply to those. With respect to lawyers in the room or not in the room, it's fine either way. I think that sometimes people want to just be with the mediator and not have lawyers in the room because that feels either more intimidating or they feel like they don't need them. That's fine. We can do it. And sometimes people want lawyers in the room. It makes them feel protective. And actually, they feel freer to say things or to agree because they know someone's got their back sitting there with them. Lawyers can come up with great ideas. They've done, especially if it's in a particular area where they specialize, they may have had many you know, other things that work out so they can come up with creative ideas. So it's not that it's better to have lawyers in the room or not. It's just whatever the parties want to have. And, and before I ask you to weigh in, Catherine Miller, I want to rephrase it a little bit better. If you don't have the, the strictures of, okay, there is a court case pending, right? And we, you know, or have to go before a judge or a jury or whatnot. It, doesn't it make it a little bit easier to just focus on the parties and their interests and what means a, a lot, what means the most to them in, you know, kind of coming towards an agreement than if, if you don't have to think about the that variable of that universe of likely outcomes, you know, does that make it a little bit easier? Yeah, I mean, I think that when it, a lot depends on your jurisdiction mm -hmm. and how uh, accommodating the court system is to mediation where you are, right? In New York, court's not that accommodating. I believe it's more accommodating in California, for example, meaning that, you know, what, there are deadlines, there are court dates, there's mm -hmm. conference schedules, and the judges are under strict scrutiny about how they're fast they're moving the cases along. And there's no 
mediation off ramp to say, hey, you know what, we're going to take a, a pause here. And so that that can put a lot of pressure on mediation because the, one of the beautiful things about mediation as opposed to litigation is that the mediation can um, kind of sort of progress at its own speed and a speed that makes sense for the parties. Now that might, they may not agree and they usually don't, Alex, as to what the right speed is. And so that might put some, you know, that might be really uncomfortable for one person. Um, so what, sometimes when you have the two things running in parallel, it can make sure that it kind of keeps going. At least there's somebody overseeing it, somebody mm -hmm. overseeing it and, and that that can be beneficial, but it also can be problematic. And and to the extent that having lawyers in the room might make it more adversarial seeming, is that kind of what you're asking about also? Yeah, because well, make it more adversarial. And then, of course, I mean, notwithstanding the, I guess, the fact that mediation, at least in Michigan, is, pri is private and confidential. So it's really not to be repeated outside of the mediation. Mm -hmm. um, there's still a fear that there may be information given or exchanged that people will try to you know, maybe use in a different way or get at it in a different, you know, because you know about something. Um, sure, you, know. you can't unring that bell. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I so, think that, that's the situation. Anytime people are in a conflict and they want someone to help them work through the conflict, which is there's a risk to saying things because other people, either the other party or the mediator is going to hear it. There may be a risk that information would get out. So you have to balance that against the risk of if you don't have that information, you might not reach an agreement. Mm -hmm. And in any kind of conflict, whether it's a legal conflict or some other type of conflict, there's something that will happen or not happen if you don't reach an agreement. Mm -hmm. So, you know, botna and watnas, they also apply to non-legal situations. So if we don't reach an agreement, maybe what's going to happen is our business that we're business partners on, and that's what our conflict is, is going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's what's going to motivate them to try and work through, understand each other and reach an agreement. So in almost any situation when you're in conflict, if you're trying to work through an agreement, you need the motivation to get there, to kind of have the energy to get you through it. And that motivation comes from what's going to happen if we don't reach an agreement. If, if it's like, you know, nothing will be different and I don't really care, then you're probably not going to have much motivation to work through it. So we're actually trying to tap into that motivation when we're working with people, why are you here? What, you know, what, what's the reason why you want to do mediation? Why do you want to continue it? Okay. Yeah. And I can see how these kind of overlap because I had a thought to talk about each separately, but they really kind of, you know, mm -hmm. conjoin with each other and kind of complement each other. Right. So mm -hmm. all of these six steps, because it sounds like I hear you talking, I hear you proceeding by agreement, going beneath the problem and everything you're talking about, allowing tension, uh -huh. supporting autonomy and honoring a connection. So it's all, mm -hmm. you pull pieces out. I mean, you know, if you had to categorize, I suppose you could put certain facts and perhaps certain techniques under one, but most the most part, they're all, would you say they overlap, Catherine Miller? Absolutely, they do. And, okay. you know, sometimes we'll be like, well, is it this concept or that concept? And it doesn't really matter. But Alex, it's really important to think about them each individually, mm -hmm. because each concept brings something really, really valuable. Like you were just mentioning proceeding by agreement. You know, one of the things that we in the, in the model believe is that the parties and the mediator and attorneys or anybody else who's involved need to structure the mediation in a way that everybody agrees to, that it's not just like sliding a MasterCard application across the desk and you know, with a teeny tiny print sign here. And that 
that way, when we build the process together and everybody understands and agrees as to how we're going to work together, then everybody can feel safe. It creates a safe container Mm -hmm. for difficult conversations. And these are often very, very, very difficult and charged conversations. And so when everybody trusts that the process is going to work the way we agreed, and that's not just with words, it's with action, so that the mediator has to be careful to make sure that she does actually ask for permission and, and get permission from both parties as we're building this working relationship, because trust is really an important piece of being able to work through difficult conversations in a way that feels really inclusive of everybody's view. And I guess my question is, is this something that can be done? I mean, usually in one mediation between a set of parties or, you know, or is there an average length of time it takes in a certain number of hours? Because it does seem a little bit, it seems like it could be a little bit longer of a process, not, you know, because we can't, there's so much to do in there to try to make sure that it's an effective process. So uh, how would you speak to that? Do you think it kind of, it's a little bit protracted, but more effective, or would you say it's equally as it can be done in the same time frame as something less in depth? So I, I think part of it depends on um, the complexity of the situation. Mm-hmm. So if you have a very complex factual situation, just as if you did a mediation in a different style, one step is going to be making sure all the information is available. Sometimes that takes more than one meeting just to get everybody having all the information they need. Um, but it could be, it's not so complex. All the information is available, but the dynamics are really hot. then you're going to be working on the dynamics. So Mm -hmm. I think that you can't say it's more or less Mm -hmm. than some other um, model. Mm -hmm. My experience, though, is that if you have, if you're trying to pressure people and you, maybe you're in a caucus model where you got people in different rooms, the media is going back and forth, kind of doling out information here and there and suggesting, you know, well, if you don't do this, you might end up in court. Maybe you'd like to compromise a little here. That can take a long time too, because you're kind of doubling up on the information. Right. Right? Yeah. So I say, I have conversation with room, room A, now I got to go and repeat it to room B. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've used this model in, you know, a three hour session that's, you know, a volunteer session at court where people come in very limited time, don't know how much information they've developed. And we just use the principles to get as far as we can. I do a lot of family law mediation divorces and that's usually a series of meetings with parties if they're alone, but with lawyers, it might be longer meetings. It could be the lawyers develop most information. We come in for a, for a day and then that's it. So it's, it's adaptable to the particular complexities and dynamics within that particular conflict. And if I could add to that, just in terms of the length of time it takes, you know, I think of it as going slow in order to go fast. Mm-hmm. It's really what, where are you spending your time? And so if you build this uh, container and you build this trust and way of working together in the beginning, you take the time to do it. Then when you get into the into the real negotiation, it goes a lot faster as opposed to not spending any time at the beginning and then spending a lot of time really stuck. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and so like if you think, all right, the best solution is compromise. Right. Then, you know, uh, which I don't think it necessarily is. Right. So people say, well, you know, it's only going to work in mediation if you're willing to compromise. I don't think that's really true. It's only going to work in mediation if you're willing to engage. 
Mm -hmm. And you're willing to share. But if you think, okay, well, the obvious answer is halfway between the two, Mm -hmm. then, you know, if that's your approach to mediation, then this doesn't make sense. But if if your idea is, you know what, you hope for something more than that, Mm -hmm. something that really allows people to perhaps get both get 100% of what they want, Mm -hmm. if we're really able to talk about it, then doesn't it make sense to create a way to talk about it so we can actually have that conversation and come to a resolution that makes a lot more sense. And so what I tell people is I'm going to take the time to do this in the beginning. And whether or not that's 15 minutes or two hours, Mm -hmm. it's because I want to make sure that when we get to talking about the substance of this dispute and the issues that are in front of us, we really have an effective, efficient way to do that. Do do you find yourself trying to educate the parties themselves on this model a little bit without actually being, you know, uh, as direct in terms of, you know, labeling the things and, and, you know, holding class about it, but at least it kind of helping them understand why we're doing this this way or why is this might be a little bit different than what they might understand or have thought about in terms of a mediation. I could I could see there being kind of a misconception like, well, what is, you know, is this something different than mediation? Yeah, yes. Okay. <laughs> I, yes, I, I think it's really helpful to explain. Well, first of all, I'm curious what their expectations are. Uh-huh. If they're coming to mediation, do they have an expectation as to what it was? Did they talk to a friend? Did they talk to their lawyer? Is their lawyer there with them saying, well, this is what it's going to be? Because, uh, you know, what they say about assumptions, Alex, is that, yeah, you know, course. when you assume something, you make an ass out of you and me. So I am, um, to my husband, sometimes dismay, a really <laughs> big believer in making the implicit explicit you know if it's Mm -hmm. if I'm thinking this and you're thinking that let's make let's have a conversation about what we're both thinking so that's how I explain it to people and I ask Mm -hmm. them what they're expecting and then I kind of explain sort of the some of the things we've talked about the stages of uh and Kevin Connor's been talking about this gathering this information, finding out what's important to everybody. And then once we've done that, then talking about options and comparing those options against what's what's possible and against what's important. And through that process of what's important and what's possible and what are what the options are, you know, kind of coming to a resolution that makes that makes sense. And they're like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I can see how um, that might kind of work and kind of look like And now, a word from our partners. Next Level Mediation Software is a mediator's best tool for advancing their online dispute resolution practice. It takes into account the psychological attitudes of the disputing parties and helps mediators find the key priorities to negotiate. Based on decision science and an easy-to-use interface, the Next Level Mediation platform can handle the most complex disputes. Register today at nextlevelmediation.com for your complimentary 30-day trial of the subscription service and enter the code A-B-A-Discount-20 for a 20% discount. So you also talk about the loop of understanding, um, and this is something that I know you alluded to in the first episode, uh, Catherine Connor, and it was... I thought it was a little bit metaphysical. It made me think about almost like uh, you needed to be a psychologist to quite master this. But the mediator often gives an opening statement and then each party gives some information about the nature of the conflict. And then you hear sometimes the mediator will restate or recapitulate in some way what they heard, what their understanding and what they heard from each party. Mm-hmm. Is that similar to a loop of understanding, uh, Catherine Connor? 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that is what we're asking the conflict professionals to do. Mm-hmm. I think the, the subtlety of it is that often what someone wants to do when they're repeating what they someone heard is they've filtered it and they might have pulled out either the particular pieces they think are relevant to the law or they had this idea that if I just reframe it a little bit, I'll, I'll move them closer to coming to an agreement at the end. And so they're trying to move them somewhere else. And what's important about the loop of understanding is when we say to someone, this is what I think that I heard you say, then we describe it. We're trying to describe as if we're in their chair, that we're actually telling their story the way we heard them say it, not the story we hope they will adopt if we can just move them someplace else. I see. We're not just a story that's the relevant legal facts, which mm-hmm. is what happens. We're not just a story about their feelings, mm-hmm. but their whole story just as it is now. And I think that's what we emphasize in our trainings. That's the part that's really hard because it's so hard not to filter out, not to use our usual professional filters or to put our own little spin on the story because of what we think it might do in the future. And that's really hard to do. So one thing about the loop of understanding is it's really a following thing. So you are saying, you know, I'm going to try to uh, summarize what each person said was important to them. And and sometimes people, and and I'm going to try to do that from my listening to them. So I'm going to try to, I always say to people, to our students, that looping happens through the heart, not through the head. Right. And so I'm I'm landing myself in terms of the impact on them of their words. And sometimes they'll go on paragraph after paragraph and, you know, and I can loop it in a sentence. And, and they're like, well, you said that so much better than I did. And that's not true. You know, I just they got a chance to process it. And I'm just observing where they're really coming from on it, where I felt it in my heart. Right. And 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 so, you know, that's that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is that neurologically, it turns out with brain research in recent years that there's a loop, an actual physiological loop that happens between in the energy between people in their in their brains, when people feel understood, right, and and that there's a sort of coming together and a sense of, of connection that happens when that happens. And, and when you are able to loop all the parties in a conflict and, and they each of them feel heard and understood, let's go back mm-hmm. to our first concept, mm-hmm. then they actually, it, the, it, the energy in the room changes and the trust builds, even if it's just with you, but the other person is sitting there, right? And so, right. you know, that, that's one thing that happens. You know, and another thing is that it's true that people uh, come in conflict, feel vulnerable, on on some facts, right, or or some circumstance, or something about them. They like you know when I present my argument, I'm not going to necessarily emphasize <laughs> this part, right, right? right? And so you know, as the mediator, though, you're trying to create a sense of you know what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And and when we uh, we talk about something called what we call the mutuality of vulnerability, so mm-hmm. that each person is able to show a little of their vulnerability, whether or not it's external vulnerability or internal vulnerability, but a little bit at a time. So that there, again, so one person doesn't feel really uh, open. For example, you know, we're trying to find out what's important to somebody on a particular topic around an issue. We go back and forth because if you say, okay, you know, one person has 20 things that are important and the other person goes, 
I don't know. I just want to get paid what I'm worth, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Like then, then the person who had all, who really put themselves out and like thought about all those things that were really mm-hmm. underlying their view mm-hmm. and their, and what was important to them, it really feels vulnerable mm-hmm. to the other person. And so even when we're talking about what the, what the external facts are or what, mm-hmm. or what's going on for the person, we want to make sure we do that in an, in a, in a way that isn't charged. So, but aren't you worried about this thing? Because if I were were you, I'd be really worried about that thing. Mm -hmm. And because that could look really, really bad for you, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you find yourselves, uh, uh, Catherine Connor, trying to be kind of stoic about facts then or what you hear because you don't want people to feel, to to kind of preview, um, or you don't want people to think that you're in some way showing any reaction to what they're saying does that help make things less charged you know and do you discourage perhaps other parties from you know of course they should be respectful but i mean it is normal to have certain reactions but mm-hmm. i could see that in some way kind of interrupting the process a bit right just being a human and you know maybe laughing or just being really uh, showing some type of disgust or, you know, does that sometimes get in the way of what, I mean, in a perfect world, would we be as um, monotone and as stoic as possible? Or do you think that, how does that kind of affect things? Actually, I would say kind of the opposite, oh, which is, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that's actually a very common assumption among okay. Um, people are trying to, you know, conflict professionals, mediators, which is I need to be non-judgmental and sort of neutral mm-hmm. and not, you know, like flare things up by trying to, you know, actually tamp down the emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, this goes to our concept of allowing tension, which is we think actually emotions are in the room. If we tamp them down by trying to, to you know, you know, oh, don't, you know, don't do that. Don't make that face or don't, mm-hmm. you know, don't interrupt, mm-hmm. you know, with like this heavy hand mm-hmm. that it's just going to go underground. It's not going to go away. So mm-hmm. actually, and this is my experience when working with people is we allow the emotions in the room, you know, obviously it becomes destructive people yelling at each other or, mm-hmm. or worse. We're not going to go with that, but emotions are in the room. And when I'm looping someone, I'm actually trying to loop with that feeling of whatever emotion it is that I'm sensing from someone. So if they're very excited, I'm going to loop with more excitement in my tone of voice. If they are seeming quite sad, then I'm going to, I'm going to want to try and feel that inside of myself and then loop with that feeling. So my voice is going to be different. My body is going to be different. Um, And so I really want people to feel like I get them on the inside, as well as what they're talking about that facts, because that's how people feel like they're really heard. And then when they're heard, they can kind of relax and they don't have to hold so tightly on to their story. Um, and so and it may very well be that the other person is, is one person's talking, the other person may be having some reactions, like, you know, things that show they may not agree with the other person. Mm-hmm. If it's not interfering, then, you know, that's okay because emotions are in the room. And I often talk to people about in the beginning and as it comes up is you need your emotions to make decisions. People who can't um, in, get in touch with their emotions, you actually can't make decisions and we want you to make good decisions. So your emotions are going to be here and we're going to acknowledge them and work with them. Okay. So, Again, you said it's the opposite, um, you know, in terms of you you don't tamp down people's feelings, let it be, I hate to overuse the word organic, but let it be natural, um, you know, but when, 
when the parties get, I mean, how do you assess when it's out of control, when it's maybe time to re refocus people and bring the temperature down? You know, I think we, we all kind of know when that happens, although I think sometimes people might jump in sooner than it needs to be, because sometimes people are having a a good conversation, even though it might be that we would start to feel uncomfortable with it. So I remember this one couple I was working with and they were interrupting each other and they were kind of sometimes saying, you know, complaints about each other um, and a little bit of calling each other names. And I was ready to step in. And ultimately I did. And I said, you know, I'm not sure. Um, is this something that's working for you? And they turned to me and goes, yeah, actually, this is how we talk, and we usually get somewhere. I'm like, <laughs> okay, if it works for you. And what's okay. interesting is then they kept going, and I started listening to them, and I realized even though initially it hadn't seemed like they were really listening to each other because they were talking on top of each other, as they went along, they were saying things that led me to know that they were really starting to understand the other person, and it was actually a very productive conversation. Um, okay. So... So, you know, if, if it looks to me like it's becoming destructive, that mm -hmm. people are, um, you know, calling each other names, mm -hmm. they're you know, turning away, their body language is saying this hurts or it's destructive, then I'm going to step in. And usually it's, I found it most effective, I step in with a quiet voice. Mm -hmm. I might say their names, you know, Alex, Catherine, because they're so into it. I could stop in like, stop it. But that then feels like I'm the one that's in charge. But if I just say quietly their names a few times, they kind of look at me like, mm -hmm. oh, oh, am I right. really doing this? And then <laughs> have the conversation about, you know, is this something that would is really helping you? Most of the time, very few couples like the one I told you about say, yes, mm -hmm. it is. Usually are like, no, it's not. Are you going to do something about it? And then it's a conversation about here's what I see going on. Here's the pattern of conflict I see between the two of you. Here's another way we could do it, which is you could each talk to me rather than right now having this conversation between the two of you in a way that's not working well. Let's have the conversation, each of you with me, but in the presence of the other. And then I'm going to be trying to understand you, which means I'm going to be looping them and trying mm. to move it into a way where they can feel understood and possibly also be listening to the other person. Would you say that that's um, uh, similar to what your approach might be, Catherine Miller, if, if, if you're in a situation, a high conflict, where the disputants are in co conflict and perhaps things have gone off the rails? Yeah, and I could add though that, you know, sometimes um, what we, we do is we, we do something we call looping the dynamic. Right, which is to say, reflecting back to the people what we see is happening in the room. And oftentimes you'll see a repeating pattern, especially if you're dealing with a family or a situation or, or a longtime employment situation or, or business partners where the people have a longstanding relationship, you'll start to observe that this pattern happens again and again. You know, someone feels disrespected, unappreciated. And, you know, they're off to the races. And so mm -hmm. we can then, uh, we call it looping the dynamic because it's essentially in the same way we're looping what someone is saying is, is going on for them. We're sort of holding up a mirror to the parties in the room and saying, here's what I observe happening. Does that feel familiar to you? Mm -hmm. And it gives them a chance to kind of take a step back and go, yeah, that really does sound familiar. Or that's not quite right. You know, you didn't quite get it. But at least now we're changing our conversation from 
the what, the, the substance of the argument to the how. How are we communicating with each other? And it's, it's incredibly effective to help them take a step back and just observe themselves in the, in the room, right? And kind of look down on it and say, wow, that is happening. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, is this helpful? As Catherine Connor was saying, is this what you want to do in this moment? No, I, it's not. But what, 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 would it make sense for us to try to find a different way to work together right, to proceeding by agreement? What would those, what would that look like? Well, each of us would have a chance to speak or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? And, and so uh, that's another one of our techniques is really making a distinction between the what of the substance of the conversation and how we're working together. When people get really hot, you know, really like impassioned and mm-hmm. arguing, or they get really stuck and they and they feel like they're really dug in and they're at, at a word that we use in conflict resolution, I think a little too much impasse, then mm-hmm. when we change our conversation to how we're working together and how it might be different, then we have an opportunity also to uh, change things. One of the things that people talk about is the power imbalance between the parties. How do you grapple with that? Because I mean, in some cases, one of the parties really does, especially if it's not a family or something like that, if it's maybe an employment context, and you're talking about someone who really did have the, does have the power to hire, fire, promote, demote, all of those things to, to take actions that, and you're trying to disarm or so, somewhat work around that differential and make both people feel empowered and kind of understand how I guess certain power can be productive and certain can be destructive. How do we work? How do you do that and still have people do all of these, you know, concepts or work through these concepts in this understanding based approach? I think one thing is to, is to talk about it. Right. And I think it's much more dangerous if it's, it's left unsaid, it's the elephant in the room, but we're not talking about it. You know, Alex, I just want to say there are some power imbalances that make mediation unsafe or making certain kinds of mediation unsafe and and Mm -hmm. like, and, you know, severe domestic violence and things like that. So I don't want to be like, oh, this is always fine. We can always just talk about it and everything is wonderful. (laughs) That's not always true. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when it's something like that, it's like, it's the obvious thing I like uh, you know I recently had a meeting where one party brought up at the end of the meeting some like right at the end something that could feel really threatening to the other person Mm. you know you say and so you could sort of observe that wow you know I can imagine that that feels really threatening to Sally Mm -hmm. obviously not Mm -hmm. the person's name you know and 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 just sort of talk about what the impact of those things are not in a judgmental way or Mm -hmm. in a way we're trying to get them to do anything but just observing what, what happened in the room. And, and so in those situations where people come in with a power imbalance, like you're talking about an employee employer situation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's really important in the beginning to talk about those kinds of things that are uh, obvious that you can see as the mediator. Mm-hmm. But then there are also things that come up uh, in the mediation itself that might create a power imbalance that might not be so apparent. Like, for example, one person is extremely talkative (laughs) and, you know, and talks all the time. And the other person is very reticent and quiet and talks much less of the time. Are we allowing the person who's talking all the time to dictate how the process is going just because they're talking all the time? Or are we allowing the person who's not talking all the time to dictate how the process is going? Because that's a possibility too. You know, Mm -hmm. what's happening in the room? And so you could say, uh, as a mediator, you know, I noticed that 
the way each of you interact with the mediation and how verbal you are in the room is not the same. And, mm. and, and I'm just, I'm curious about that. And I wonder how that impacts you. And like, and that is something I am genuinely curious. And I think it's really, really important when you start to have these conversations as a neutral about what's going on is to rather than be telling them this is wrong, because as a mediator, you could be like that bad talkative person, that person leaves no air in the room for anybody else. That person is a bully. That mm-hmm. person is narcissist that, you know, you, all this kind of stuff that can happen in, in your head, or you just make a decision about something about that person that's generally not a good thing. Mm-hmm. And But on the other hand, if you just say, if you can get to yourself to a place of genuine curiosity, what's going on here what is really going on here and for them and how is it landing on them because it really doesn't matter how it's landing on me Mm -hmm. and that's a really interesting conversation and a lot of times uh, when I ask a question like that I'm I'm really surprised by the answer and I think if I didn't come from a place of of real curiosity about what was going on for them then they would have been no room for that surprise Mm -hmm. so what do you see? Um, I'll start off with Catherine Miller. So um, is there something, though, you think universally, though, is missing in most uh, mediation trainings that the center captures? I'm so happy you asked that question, Alex, because <laughs> I do. Okay. You know, I think that um, almost all mediation trainings have the structure of the mediation, whatever the model is, you know, the, the, the pedagogical theories and ideas and, and maybe even, you know, techniques mm-hmm. that, the, that they're teaching the students. And they almost all allow for some role play where the participants in the programs get to try out the mediation in a, in a simulated fact pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, But one thing that I think that makes the center's training uh, really different and unique is that we add a part about how the learning is landing on each participant personally, right? And so we really encourage people to think about how they're experiencing the training and not just think about it, write about it, talk about it, have small groups about it, because it's a really important piece of the of the of all learning is how it lands on the, on the student right and and how that person especially an adult learner is going to what they're going to take away from it and how they're going to integrate it because if, if it's just an idea and you're just sort of thinking about the idea and it's just sort of in your prefrontal cortex as a new idea it doesn't really take hold not in in you and obviously are the, the people i think it's much more more important that people who take our training leave with a sense of how this is going to matter to them and what they're going to do with it professionally, personally, whatever, or both, ideally both, uh, rather than that they remember exactly how to loop or exactly what our, our, our six concepts are, or, you know, that you can always look up, right? You can see a video about that, but you can't see a video on how it landed on you. And we take really uh, we pay a lot of attention and take real care to make sure that each person is participating fully as a person in the program. And I think that makes it much more special than just a, another continuing education program. Wow. I, you said that better than I could know. I mean, I, that really is a, a great way of putting something. You know, I mean, I can't imagine because every day when we're learning something, nobody thinks about how it lands on someone. They really don't, you know, and I know that 
Yeah, I, I was about to say there isn't always time for that, but maybe there, there should be though. What were your thoughts, uh, Catherine Connor? Well, I agree with what Catherine said. And okay. I think another piece that's quite different is how much emphasis we put on paying attention to what's happening inside of you and its impact when you're working with people through conflict because you're one of the people in the room and your reactions, your judgments, your motivation, um, your reactions, they all have an impact on what's happening between you and, and where it goes. And so we spend a lot of time in trying to help people to start paying attention to that. And what do you do with it? And how do you work with people um, when you're having reactions and how do your motivations and, and how you're working impact what's happening in the room? So we, we believe that that's so critical that we spend a good chunk of the training on it. And I actually haven't heard of other trainings where that's the case. A lot of it has to do with what's, what's happening on the outside. You know, yeah. what's the next step? What do we do at this stage? What are the words that we use? And, and we do all that, but there's this added part about what's happening inside of us. And that's probably why I always think of this kind of a little bit more from a metaphysical psychological standpoint, but you've assured me, Catherine Connor, and I guess <laughs> Catherine Miller will too, that I don't need to be a psychologist or psychiatrist to get to, 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 to understand and really appreciate, right, the depth of this model, correct? Yeah, Alex, let, let me ask you this. Do okay. you have friends? I'd like to think I have a couple, yeah. yeah. And, and <laughs> okay. do you care about those people? I do. Right. And if they come to you and they go, Alex, I've got a really big problem. Can we talk about it? Would you talk about it with them? I would. You can do this. Okay. I get it. Well, that's not <laughs> okay. I was going to make it more simple. Are you human? Right. There you go. I love it. I love it. That's a great way uh, to kind of uh, end this. Um, and it feels like I do. It, it does feel like we've just kind of had like a friendly conversation, right, about these kind of things. And you know, you were laying out a model, but it really just feels like we were talking among friends. So, you know, that human experience. So um, I'd like to thank you for joining me and for providing further insight on your model. Um, I appreciate you speaking to the specific components of the model. And I understand that these aren't necessarily new concepts, but it's, an, it's, it's how they're presented and how they're packaged, right? All of them are, I did take that, of course, you know, full disclosure from the website saying that everything isn't necessarily new, but it's how they're used creatively, right? Um, and presenting them in a different way to achieve perhaps different and better outcomes. So thank you both. And I do appreciate your time today. It's been so thank much you. fun. Thank you, Alex. It was a pleasure talking to you again. Thank you for listening to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. If you enjoyed the episode and you'd like to help support our podcast, Please share it with others, subscribe, or leave a rating and review. To stay up to date with all the latest info on dispute resolution, follow the ABA section of dispute resolution on LinkedIn and Twitter. Or for more information, other ABA dispute resolution programs and publications, including upcoming events, visit www.americanbar.org forward slash dispute. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.